Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. W.F. Strong. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Good Books Radio. I'm your host today, Dr. W.F. Strong, sitting in for either Dr. John Cook or David Inahosa. I don't know which one, but I'm sure both have a decent alibi for being outside the studio, or at least they have plausible deniability. Anyway, I'm grateful to sit in for them to do an interview on this wonderful book, Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom, by Thomas E. Ricks. You've seen him interviewed on Fox News and on CNN. Uh, He is a military analyst, and um, he has had a life as a war correspondent. So it's quite interesting that he's written this book on Churchill and Orwell, uh, particularly because, I mean, not only is Churchill a noted war historian himself and, of course, the savior of the civilized world in World War II, but Orwell also, perhaps unknown to many of you, was a war correspondent. He fought in the Spanish Civil War in his youth in uh, wrote, I would say, one of the most insightful uh, war documents ever written for someone sitting in those trenches. So um, anyway, we're going to talk to Thomas Ricks right now. This is Bill Strong. How are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Are are you in uh, New York? Where are you? I'm in Maine. I live in Maine on an island off the coast. Oh, how nice. <laughs> I love it. Yes. I, well, I'm, I'm very close to South Padre Island uh, down at the bottom of Texas. Well, we're on opposite corners of the country. I know, right? <laughs> You're looking out the window at the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, yeah I'm, uh, I'm not too far. Well, actually, I'm closer right now to the Rio Grande because uh, I'm, at, uh, I'm in Brownsville where the studio is. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, if I didn't have a few buildings in the way, I could, I could see the river. But it's not much. Of, it's not much of a river anymore, you know. <laughs> yeah, used, used to be. People walk across it in El Paso. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah. They, they, uh, if you go down to where it flows into the Gulf, uh, you can you know wade across it quite easily. And um, uh, but you know, back many many years ago, you're an historian, so I'm I'm sure you know this. That they they used to run steamboat traffic all the way up a hundred miles and up the river, but now of course it's all dammed. I didn't and, know that. Yeah, yeah, there's a Richard King, the uh, the famous Richard King of the King Ranch, uh, who established King Ranch. He uh, got his start uh, running, uh, he was a captain of a riverboat, and he made his fortune running uh, cotton into Mexico and relabeling it uh, during the Civil War when there was a quarantine. And that, that's how he made his wealth. <laughs> it was uh, like a lot of people who made their wealth in this country bootlegging. <laughs> mm-hmm. Talk to Joe Kennedy. Yeah. Uh, right, right. That's, I always think of that when I when I think of King's wealth. And actually, it was Robert E. Lee who was stationed here at Fort Brown who told him, he said, you need to go up there, up north of here and buy all the land you can, that worthless land that's uh, selling for 50 cents an acre, you know, buy all you can. <laughs> so he, mm-hmm. he got his good advice from Robert E. Lee. Um, but let's talk about your book. I love your book. It's just magnificent. Uh, the... Um, when I'm a very big Churchill fan, I guess like a lot of Americans, but perhaps I'm a big Churchill fan because my father was uh, um, an historian and he had all of his books. And my father was in World War II. He was stationed in Canada. He was um, primarily a supply officer. But anyway, he had a, a great love for Churchill all his life, so I, I picked it up from him. So I'm, I'm going to do the introduction to stuff later. We're just going to start talking, and then I'll splice okay. it all together, okay? So the... Um, 
I'll begin with this, that I've seen two movies this year, uh, both of them I liked a great deal, Dunkirk and uh, then the one with Gary Oldman as Churchill. And I wonder what you thought of those movies. I really enjoyed both the movies. Um, Dunkirk, I just thought, brilliantly presented how Dunkirk felt, I think. Mm -hmm. I think it downplayed um, Churchill's role in it and the consequences. If those troops were not taken off those beaches, Mm -hmm. England would have lost its army and likely would have been in a position of being forced to surrender. Mm -hmm. The fact they got those troops back from Dunkirk gave them the core of an army. Those were experienced troops uh, who quickly could become the sergeants and NCOs to train up a new Mm -hmm. generation army. Mm -hmm. But they left behind almost all their tanks and guns and trucks in the sand dunes, and they really had to re-equip that that army. Um, The other movie, Darkest Hour, uh, I thought was quite good. I think Gary Oldman played played Churchill extremely well. There were a couple of things that struck me as historically anomalous. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a scene in the subway where Churchill is reassured by the people that they're behind him, which I accepted as poetic history. Mm -hmm. Uh, Churchill, I don't think, ever rode the subway but once in his life and Uh got lost. Uh, I think he took a bus once in his life. (laughs) But it did capture the sense, which is correct, that British elites, and especially the British Conservative Party, did not back Churchill, that um, his support was much more from the people. He rallied the people, and then the politicians rallied after them following that. But a lot of politicians thought that Churchill would be a short-timer, a transient prime minister, someone who would hold the fort for a while while they got together a peace treaty. And even uh, Churchill's uh, foreign minister, as you see in the film Darkest Hour, mm-hmm. uh, Lord Halifax, was in favor of negotiating a peace treaty that likely would have given all of Europe to the Nazis in exchange for the British being able to keep their overseas empire. So both those films were good. Um, what really struck me about Darkest Hour as well is I knew half the lines because they were drawn from speeches and diaries and letters. So I said, oh, this is where, this is where they, they do that speech. This, this is where they do that. It was kind of fun, never having read the script or seen the movie. <laughs> so, you, so you felt it was fairly historically authentic? Yeah, a couple of things were off, but, but basically really quite good. Well, it's very difficult, I assume, to put together a two-hour movie and make it historically accurate, absolutely, because you've got to have devices to get from one place to another. You've got to have transition, and it's difficult, unless it's a documentary, I guess. It is, yeah. The uh, what, what do you think most people don't know about Churchill? I think what most people don't know about Churchill was that he was a failure in most things most of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, he was not a good domestic politician, as we saw from his second term as prime minister in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was kind of bored by it. That he was good at one thing, which was leading his nation in wartime. <laughs> and he had one really good year in his life, in a lot of bad years. And his one really good year was 1940, mm-hmm. the year we've seen in those two films. And my conclusion is if you're only going to have one really good year in your life, Make, make it 1940 and save Western <laughs> civilization, which is what he did. Yes. I, I think he was the only one who saw the moment clearly. It's funny. There's actually, I was thinking once about a book to be written of people who see the war clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, Sherman 
mm-hmm. of this in the Civil War, for example, mm-hmm. it drives him to madness. Mm-hmm. He said this is going to be a, a bloodbath for hundreds of thousands of casualties, mm-hmm. and people poo-pooed it. Uh, when, when the first time that Lincoln offered Sherman command in Tennessee, Sherman turned it down mm-hmm. and said, I, I really don't want to do it. And Lincoln kind of said, look, I'm not asking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, need, you need to do it. And he does go crazy for a while and um, kind of has a nervous breakdown, contemplates suicide, partly because he sees the nature of the war. It's a burden to carry. I think uh, Churchill's great strength, oddly enough, in World War II was his total lack of empathy for anyone else. Anyone who would really have some empathy probably would have been crushed by that war, by the burden. Mm-hmm. Instead, uh, Churchill reveled in it. For him, it was great. He loved 1940. Someone once asked him if you could live in a year over. It would be, and he said, oh, it would be 1940. Mm-hmm. That's the year that, you know, they had German planes bombing them. They were facing a German invasion. England was reeling. America had not come into the war. But he loved it. He really ran the war well that year. And it was his magnificent rhetoric that countered um, Hitler's dark rhetoric, wouldn't you say? Yes, and that also undermined conservative opposition, the opposition from his own party. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they said, let's talk about a peace treaty, he said, gentlemen, uh, I'm going to discuss a peace treaty when I'm lying on the ground with choking on my own blood, having mm-hmm. taken down as many Nazis as I can. <laughs> I mean, he basically said, I'm not leaving, I'm going to fight them. And th- his magnificent rhetoric had something else in it, which connects him to Orwell. Mm-hmm. He yes, I wanted to get to that. How, how do you connect these these two? They lived at the same time, of course. Well, well. Be- before I connect the two, though, mm-hmm. I want to say his magnificent rhetoric, those speeches mm-hmm. of the summer of 1940, one reason they were so powerful was he told the truth mm-hmm. to the British people. We will fight them on the beaches. He actually describes a fighting retreat. Mm-hmm. We'll fight them on the beaches, on the landing fields, in the cities and towns, in the hills. That's saying they're going to invade and we're going to retreat as we fight them. Mm-hmm. He, was tell- he, to- he tells people this is a bad time. His speech on Dunkirk is, look, you know, we just got clobbered out there. He tells them the truth, and they rally around him because somebody's finally being honest. Hmm. Very unusual for a politician. A great trick to have, though. <laughs> yes. uh, which more, more would try it. Yes. Yes, and, and but the, the the thing that I always appreciated about his speeches was not just the the telling of the truth, but the the rhythmic nature of it, the parallelism in it. Uh, they're just beautifully uh, constructed. They are. Uh, it, it's actually one thing you uh, when you're talking about Churchill and Orwell. There are so many differences between them, mm-hmm. but one of, of the big connections between them is they both love words. They love language. Mm-hmm. And they want to protect words. They think words have meaning, mm-hmm. and they need to be understood and used well, like good tools. Who was it who said that Churchill marshaled the English language and sent it into battle, or something to that effect? Yeah, I think it was actually one of his political opponents um, uh-huh. who said, I think it might have been Halifax who said later that year, uh, I didn't realize uh-huh. the, the strength that Churchill would bring, that he would send the English language into battle. <laughs> So, well, tell us about Orwell. How did you decide to put these two men together? When when did you think of this idea and say, this must be done? They've always been kind of two heroes of mine, Churchill and Orwell, mm-hmm. and that was interesting to ponder. And then it occurred to me once, when I was a war correspondent, that they also each had been war correspondents mm-hmm. when they were younger. And that intrigued me. Uh, but it, what brought them together for me was looking around at our own time now 
when democracy seems kind of shaky, mm-hmm. our political system doesn't seem to be working that well, mm-hmm. when people prefer opinion to facts. Yeah. And then I thought, boy, these guys are two guys who in the 1930s, from very different positions on the political spectrum, they look around and they say, you know, the key question of the 20th century isn't Freud and the workings of the unconscious. It isn't Marx and the ownership of the means of production. The key question of the 20th century, they both decide independently, is the relationship of the individual to the state and the question of how do we preserve individual liberty and freedom in an era of an ever-increasing powerful state, an intrusive state, and even state surveillance. And they agree that liberty begins with the right of the individual to perceive, to speak, and to assemble with other people. So freedom of speech, mm-hmm. freedom of conscience, freedom of assembly. And they understand that freedom begins there. It doesn't begin with the government saying you're free. It begins with your own exercise of your own freedoms. And so from far from far on the right and far on the left, the two of them, I think, really see this clearly in a way that others didn't. So if you go back and look at the speech that um, Churchill gives on the first day of World War II in, in England, he says this is a war about the role of the individual mm-hmm. and whether the individual can survive uh, with, an, with an ever-increasing state of the type the Nazis are building. Well, would, uh, where would Churchill be today if he were an American politician? Where would he be on the political spectrum? Hard to know. Um, he was more a centrist in, in many ways, mm-hmm. especially in domestic uh, affairs. Uh, he, but he also he wasn't particularly interested in domestic domestic affairs. The other thing is he was galvanized by war. He wasn't a very good politician in peacetime, either before World War II or after. Well, you know, war something was easier to peg. Something or, I was or thinking. While I would, go ahead. Uh, something I was thinking as you were talking about uh, a book that should be written, uh, given you know the characteristics you noted. I thought uh, also of uh, people whose lives had their ascendancy at, at sixty-five or sixty or something. You know, that you think their it's life funny, is over. It's actually something else I was thinking about: people who actually achieve success late in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I have thought about a book about that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't figure out kind of a unifying way uh-huh. to do it. Mm-hmm. But it's fascinating. Um, Churchill, at a time when most people retire, 65, yeah, it's became incredible. prime minister. It's <laughs> just yeah. incredible. Um, whereas poor old Orwell doesn't make it past age 48. Uh-huh. Um, and what, what, what kind of life might have he had mm-hmm. if he'd lived to be 88, 40 years later? He would have only died 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating to look at, though. Well, I, the reason I thought of it was because I had just uh, finished a biography on uh, Judge Roy Bean of Texas, and mm-hmm. uh, and he didn't become Judge Roy Bean until he was about 60, 62. You know, he was kind of a vagrant. Mm-hmm. He was really on the other side of the law much of his life, and somewhere mm-hmm. around 60, he got a second wind, and then he became the Judge Roy Bean that's famous, <laughs> you know, in the history books. Uh, so that's what made the, right. when I when I read yours on Churchill, I said, "Oh, here's another one that uh, got his got his uh, footing, so to speak, late in life because he was considered kind of crazy, wasn't he, Churchill?" Hmm. Um, some he certainly was unusual. Uh-huh. Uh, I think he, he he was different from many people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the lack of empathy was important. He basically was about himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he lived his own life in a, in a really 
extraordinarily unique way. He he sat in bed all morning, smoking and um, working and reading newspapers. Uh, you know, he, he drank sort of slowly but constantly. Mm-hmm. I love that in World War II, he was in the British Embassy in Cairo, came down for breakfast and asked the ambassador's wife for a carafe of white wine with his breakfast. <laughs> she raised her eyebrows. And he said, don't worry, madam, I've already had two whiskey sodas. <laughs> Uh, when the uh, when the, likewise when the king of Saudi Arabia said to him that uh, smoking and um, alcohol were forbidden in his religion, Churchill responded, "They are my religion." <laughs> I haven't heard that one. That's, that's great. There's so many wonderful stories about his marvelous wit, and and he some he, of them are true. Actually, now, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> There's uh, uh, I I read about his. Um, let me see. He read a he wrote a novel when he was twenty five, I think, uh, called yeah, Sab- S- Sabrola, I think it was. Yes, Sabrola. Oh. Yeah. But uh, the thing that struck me in that is there's a politician that gives great speeches. Yes, and he liked practicing. He always loved good rhetoric and, and good speeches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Orwell, there's another commonality there. Actually, mm-hmm. Orwell wrote a series of bad novels <laughs> in the 1930s. Uh, really unreadable. I, mm-hmm. I tried. Really? And then out of nowhere, he writes this great book, Homage to Catalonia, which is actually my favorite book by him, mm-hmm. even more than Animal Farm in mm-hmm. 1984. It's his, his, his personal memoir of the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. As a war correspondent, it struck me, this is one, just one of the best accounts I've ever read of what it's like to be at war. Hmm. Well, I must read that. Does, uh, why was he there? Why, why, what drew him to go fight in that war? Well, the Spanish Civil War was a major deal in Europe in the 1930s. Here you have a Republican leftist government under attack by a fascist, fascist rebels, nationalist, the army, supported by a lot of the nobility and the Catholic Church. Uh, and it seemed to be the war of the future to a lot of people in Europe. Would it be nationalism and fascism, or would it be leftism um, and socialism? Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the war gets messy pretty quickly because nobody will help the Republicans. Should I stop? No, it's okay. Because just... nobody, nobody will help the Republicans except the Russians. The Russians come in, the Soviets come in, and they take over a lot of the running of the war. And, of course, the first enemy of the communist is not the fascist. It's the anti-Stalinist leftist. And George Orwell had found himself in one of those groups, anti-Stalinist leftist. Mm-hmm. And they are attacking uh, his friends. Some of his friends died in jails run by the Russians outside of Barcelona. The Russians actually built a crematorium outside of Barcelona to get rid of the bodies of the socialist they killed. Mm. So, Turk Orwell comes back from the Spanish Civil War, having been shot through the neck and survived it, really having had a political education. He goes in a pretty conventional leftist. He comes out and he, thinking, you know, communism and fascism have a lot in common, and I'm against both of them. I'm for freedom. Mm-hmm. And he remains a, a leftist, mm-hmm. a socialist, but he becomes very critical of leftists who won't tell the truth about the war, leftists who know that the Soviets are running a big part of this war, but won't admit it mm-hmm. because it would tar the, the Republican cause. So a lot of people are saying, look, communism is good, so anything that helps communism is good, so lying is good if it helps communism. And Orwell breaks with that, and he says, no, you've got to start by telling the truth, mm-hmm. even when it hurts your own side, because if you don't, you break faith with the facts. 
and keep faith with the facts is the, is the beginning point here. And this is where you see uh, some uh, parallels with uh, Churchill and Orwell. Very much on their insistence on three things. Number one, have principles. Mm-hmm. Stick to them. Mm-hmm. Number two, try to figure out the facts and be willing to admit new facts mm-hmm. and insist on the facts. And don't hide the facts because they're politically embarrassing. Number three, apply the principles you have and understand and know to the facts you see and from that develop a course of action. This is one reason I ended the book with Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. writing his letter from the Birmingham jail. I found that very interesting. Because he does exactly that. He says, what are the facts of the matter in Birmingham? The fact is that it is the most segregated city in America. The fact is also that America says that black people can vote. But in Birmingham, we are not allowed to vote. So I am holding up the discrepancy between the facts and the law. Mm-hmm. And you say I'm breaking the law. All I'm asking you to do is enforce the law. Yeah, that, that was very a, powerful. Yeah, very powerful very ending. Much, and very much in Orwell and in Churchill's traditions. Something else you bring up there toward the end of the book that uh, struck me given our current climate was that you mentioned that uh, that uh, something that I don't know that Orwell said it, but he at least inferred it, that if you want to control a people uh, in a totalitarian way, that uh, you uh, erase the past. Uh, Yes, he he talks about that, that the first thing they do uh, is not only rewrite the present and tell you, you know, the sky sky is red when it's blue, Mm. uh, they also tell you that they rewrite the past. They Mm. have to rewrite the past as part of their control of the present and the future. And it's interesting, actually, that that makes historians one of the first enemies mm-hmm. of a totalitarian state. So they want to get rid of them, or at least get rid of their version of things? Because they're, they're dangerous. Mm-hmm. They're people who know the facts know of the what facts. happened. And Trotsky used to be a big hero, then suddenly Trotsky's the enemy. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, I can remember when Trotsky was a big hero, and mm-hmm. that becomes a crime. Well, this is a, so what came to my mind is here in the South, here in Texas, we've had this debate about statues. And, I mean, it's been all over the country, but particularly in the South. And um, and I understand that a lot of the statues were put up as propaganda. And I understand people finding them offensive and wanting to get rid of them. But I'm always torn. Is this erasing history? Is this totalitarianism? Uh, or is it okay since we're not uh, erasing the history books? <laughs> you know, uh, where where do you stand on this? I say expand history. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is not that Americans don't have enough history, it's that they don't know their history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, I would stand with Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Uh, for every statue of Robert E. Lee, uh-huh. there should be statues of the slaves, mm-hmm. of the people who lived under that. Mm-hmm. And there aren't. There's not enough understanding of lynchings uh, of history, of our civil, civil rights heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also would go further and say i would not no american black or white should have to serve in an army post named for a confederate leader mm-hmm. and most major u.s army posts are named mm-hmm. for confederates uh fort fort yeah. Bragg, fort hood, uh, fort hood. <laughs> yeah. um, and i think that's really bad i think that it, it sends the wrong message about the confederacy the confederate the confederates mm-hmm. officers like lee Mm-hmm. broke their oath to the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the soldiers had never taken an oath to support the United States. Robert E. Lee did. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of those, of those officers broke their oath 
mm-hmm. and they they killed soldiers who wore the uniform they used to wear. You know, when people talk about well, their country wasn't really United the United States. Come on, I mean, George Washington. Mm-hmm. When they mean when they say he was the father of his country, they don't mean the father of Virginia. Mm-hmm. They mean the father of the United States. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of Virginians like George Thomas who fought for the Union. Um, I would name the forts uh, after people from those states who fought uh, for freedom, not who fought for slavery. And that's really what that war was about. Uh, We have strong feelings about this in this house because my wife is a 19th century historian and my daughter just got her master's degree in 19th Uh, century American history. mm -hmm. So we discuss these things a lot. But basically my bottom line is Americans, the problem is not the history you see in front of you, it's all the history you don't see. Mm -hmm. And this is one of Orwell's points. Yeah. uh, The people who talk about the Confederacy, um, 90% of them are talking out of ignorance. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, even now, Sherman's march across Georgia is taught in our schools almost as a war crime. Mm -hmm. It was not. It was a brilliantly executed campaign by the greatest general of the Civil War to bring home the war to the rich Georgians who had been untouched by it, mm. and also to demoralize the Georgians at the front who knew their homes were being attacked. He did not attack indiscriminately. He actually went out of his way to help people who supported the Union um, and to free slaves. Uh, it was a brilliant campaign, but it's not taught that way, and Americans really don't understand their history. Uh, so yeah, you want to keep up a statue of Robert E. Lee? Uh, there are a lot of other statues that should be up there too, and I don't think well, Robert that e. Lee, Black Americans. Robert E. Lee didn't even want statues of Robert E. Lee. You know, he said yeah, people don't know that Robert E. Lee poured brine into the wounds of a slave mm-hmm. he had had, mm-hmm. had whipped. They don't know about the history of, of these people enough. No, I agree. I agree. Uh, I'm, uh, the point I was making is that. A lot of people don't know that Robert E. Lee, after the war, was against putting up statues of any Southern mm-hmm. celebration. He said it would uh, delay the healing of the country. And so he, at least, uh, you know, for his uh, errors, let's say, at least he did what he could to put it back together. Uh, so uh, I'm not saying he's a great man. I'm just saying <laughs> that uh, there's there's but another like another bit of history people don't know. Austin recently took down Robert E. Lee uh, as a street name, mm-hmm. which I think is entirely correct because mm-hmm. a street name honors him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that, and, and no American um, who did what he did should be honored in that way. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. I, I love this book. It's a magnificent book. And, and, uh, and now we're both thinking of writing the same book on people who are 65 or older and... <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got another book I'm working on. Actually, my next book is about the uh, educations of the first four American presidents, and that's going to take me another four years. So, so I have time. yourself out. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so you much. I, I enjoy I love the book, and uh, I don't have to say good luck. It's already on the you know top 100 from last year, so I'm sure it's already a super bestseller. But, uh, but I, I loved it and certainly recommend it to everybody. Thank you very much. Okay. I enjoyed it. We've been talking to Thomas E. Ricks. He is the author of Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. This book was last year's Top 100 on Amazon, so I highly recommend it. As you can tell, Thomas Ricks knows his stuff, and this is a beautifully written book. If you like Churchill or Orwell, or both, you want to get this book. For Good Books Radio, I'm signing off, Dr. W.F. Strong. Have a great day, and as always... Here's hoping that all your books 
are good reads.